Hello, and welcome to this issue of the Future Foodcast. I'm Pam Linemiller, your host. We are excited to have another industry expert to speak to us today all about seafood, believe it or not. Quick shout out to our sponsor, Farm to Plate. They're a software company really diving into the food system ecosystem. We're excited to welcome Nobu Yamanashi. He is the president of Yama Seafood. Welcome to the podcast, Nobu. Thanks, Pam. Yeah, so glad to have you. And you have a great company story and the industry that you're involved in is really unique. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your company and how you got started? Sure. My father, Kingo, started the business um, back in the mid-70s. He was one of the first uh, first person to commercialize bluefin tuna that was being caught in uh, Boston, Boston area, Gloucester, um, where the fishermen, it was more sports fishing, and they were kind of tossing it back in the waters. And I guess, you know, he saw the opportunity where, you know, sushi as a restaurant and industry was starting to take off in New York. And uh, once they found, once he found out that it was just kind of being, you know, fished and thrown back in, he was like, well, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a perfect opportunity. So he's one of the first to buy it from a sports fisherman for like a dollar a pound. Now it's 10, 15, 20 X what it is, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Um, but he was the first one to bring it back to New York, essentially like open a van, say to a restaurant, just take your cut. And that's kind of how it all started. I'm assuming now it's, you know, highly uh, against all regulations, but that's kind of how the business started. And, um, you know, he started off as a small company focusing on tuna, you know, purchasing from, you know, a local Montauk, Boston, Florida, and then he was selling it to the Tsukiji market in Japan and auction. And he, that's kind of how the business started. But as the restaurant side started taking off on, in New York, uh, you know, our, our warehouse at the time in the beginning was in the Gansford uh, Meatpacking District. Now it's called the Gansford Building. And, um, you know, so restaurants started opening. We started delivering there. And he started focusing more on distribution side than the uh, exporting and, you know, uh, selling just tuna. Yep. So, and then in, I think 1990, uh, we outgrew the space um, and we moved to our current facility in Jersey City, we're uh, in Liberty State Park area. Yeah, nice. And I'm familiar with Jersey, love that area of the United States. For our international listeners, that's in the Northeast and, and New York, obviously, most people know where that is. The, the fun part of this story for me is that Essentially, you're probably right. It would not be legal to kind of go down on the docks and talk to the sports fishermen and say, hey, can I buy your tuna? Uh, but what insight your dad had to to just start that way. And, and then he was able to carve out a profit margin immediately and, and start, you know, doing that international work too, um, connecting uh, the two countries. That's really amazing. So today you're really uh, tuna is a big part of your operation, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it used to be a much larger portion, but we've been able to kind of diversify our portfolio and bring on, you know, different aspects of the seafood business to not be so heavily reliant on tuna. It's definitely our bread and butter or our core business or, um, what we take the most pride in. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's still about probably a third, a quarter to a third of our overall business at the moment. Yeah, and you've got a lot of expertise in that area. And one of the other things is your sourcing too with the market in Japan. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you have a really unique relationship there that not a lot of seafood companies do. 
Yeah, I mean, culturally speaking, um, it's not a very easy market to source from. You need to either know somebody, speak the language, know the culture, or be part of the culture. Um, you can't really be an outsider trying to, you know, wave around a, a blank check and say, hey, I'm willing to purchase. It just doesn't, it hasn't. I mean, it may work that way in the future, but, you know, it's a, it's a country that is heavily, it's, it doesn't, they're not diverse. They don't really speak English. So uh, any kind of outside challenges, outside factors, they don't really want to deal with. They're all about relationship and referrals and trust. So any outsider walking in, it's just very difficult to kind of penetrate into that market. So yeah, we source yeah. directly from Hokkaido, which is the northern tip of Japan. Um, we source uh, fish from Kyushu, which is on the southern end. And then obviously we have a very strong relationship in the, the new Toyosu market, which is the former Tsukiji market. Where we source from several vendors and yeah I mean, we import four days a week from japan uh to to jfk and uh yeah i mean we're much of we're as much of a logistics company as a seafood company so you know because we have hundreds of shipments every week from all over the world from tuna to salmon to japan to it doesn't matter so it's just consolidating all of that managing that picking up at newark airport jfk you know trucking companies going to pick up at, at the full and fish market at, there's different areas to pick up at um you know it's, it's just coordination of all, all of that at pretty much at in ungodly hour middle of the night where no one's awake um it's that's the biggest challenge and to make sure that if it doesn't go according to plan to be able to communicate that with our clients saying hey there's a delay you know obviously uh, airlines do get delayed like shipments get delayed shipments get lost when you have mass uh, volume of things moving outside of what we own only we deal with so you know yeah. shipment gets lost sometimes shipment gets delayed all the time gets held at custom so it's about being able to you know pivot and adjust whenever those things happen whether it doesn't make any business sense to lose a ton of money to send out somebody to go or um you know making a second run to the airport to go do an afternoon delivery um, these are things that if you know we feel that it's our responsibility to be able to do whatever is necessary to um, cater to our clients yeah, I, you know, and that is um, something I think our listeners might not realize about your business is you're dealing with fresh fish and the whole logistical situation with, with importing it, exporting it, getting your deliveries made. And one of the things that I really noticed in looking at your website, watching your video, you've got some great information out there for any of our listeners that want to take a look at that, but you are really, really tied closely with your clients. You know them, you know your chefs, you know your restaurants, you know what kind of cuts they like. I mean, the level of detail uh, as we're watching, I mean, even when you're fish cutters, I don't know what the official term is, but there's a lot of work that goes into preparing the fish for your client. And those people are experts in what they do and they know how your client wants it cut. Can you share a little bit about how you achieve that? I don't even know where to start. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's very, uh, it's a very nuanced business. It's not like a system can take over or robots can take over and do everything properly because fish itself is very subjective. Um, you know, the chefs itself has their own understanding of what's good and what's bad. Doesn't mean you could talk to five different chefs and they have five different opinion opinions about the same exact tuna that I delivered to them. And they one could say it's the best thing they've ever seen. The next person could say it's the worst thing they've ever seen. So it's understanding their 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 understanding of what good and bad is. So that requires some trial and error communication. You know, quite frankly, it's it's more of a partnership than a transactional relationship of I sell you X, you pay me Y. And, 
you know, uh, I deliver it to you and that's it. You know, it's more like, you know, at the end of the day, these are wild species or, you know, they're not made in a factory, right? I mean, some are farmed, of course, but even, even if it's farmed, it's not, not every single fish is going to be exact same fat content, exact same color, exact same freshness, water temperatures differ, the way that was killed differ, the way, you know, uh, it transported differs, uh, packed is different. So every single tuna, for example, is different. There's no one tuna that's the same. It's kind of like, I guess, snowflakes, right? And then um, to be able to then say, okay, well, the French chef wants this color. The Japanese chef wants this color. The Italian chef wants this color. But this guy doesn't like the tail side. This guy wants the center cut. This guy wants... You know, he, he's accepting of a little bit overweight. This guy's definitely, you know, very hard no on being over, um, you know, because literally a 500 pound bluefin tuna, a centimeter can make a difference of five pounds. If you ordered 15 pounds and you cut it, you make a, you know, and it's all by eye, you gauge it by eye, say, okay, it's going to be this much. You cut it and it ends up being 22 pounds, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it may not seem like a big deal. But for some, it may be a huge deal. It's like, hey, I, I order 15 pounds and you're sending me 50% more. What is that? I can't do that. Right. So to be able to then understand if something were to happen, because we're humans, to be able to be to make that uh, judgment call and say, okay, this guy can still accept it. We obviously notify the customer, say, hey, we're sorry. We overcut yours a little bit. Um, it's still middle of the week. So can you use it? You know, And just kind of we'll send less the next order. Or we say, okay, well, we can't. So we can't. This customer is definitely not going to accept it. So we have to send that to somebody else or send a different cut or trim it again. Um, so these are things that we have to, you know, know based on the customer preferences, habits, personalities to be able to make that judgment call. So it is a lot of it is um, knowledge and expertise driven on people. It's just people at the end of the day. So it is just people at the end of the day, but there is a lot of expertise and knowledge required and also the skill in dealing with the fish and cutting and and preparing and all of that uh, as you watch the video. So that is, that is amazing to me. Um, and the knowledge of the chefs, like I said, just that partnership is really, really unique. Uh, well, you talked about some of the preparation, but you, you have an operation that like you talked about Friday night is, is your big night order, order prep and getting out to restaurants. Can you give us a window into what happens Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's actually Friday morning, Thursday Friday night. Morning. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, we, we're not open on weekends, Saturdays and Sundays. A lot of other seafood distributors are open on Saturdays, so they don't have as uh, they don't have the need to be as crazy busy as we are. Um, but on Fridays, we process about like about a third of our sales that week goes on a Friday. So on a typical Monday through Thursday, like most people would start around three, four o'clock in the morning on a typical Friday, most people start around 2, 2.30 in the morning. Uh, myself, you know, I'm usually there by 3.34 most days. And then Fridays, I'm there by 2, 2.30. And um, yeah, it's just packing an extra, you know, like today we packed 150 orders. Friday, we'll probably pack 300 orders. So, you know, 12, today we had 12 vans that go out. Friday, we'll probably have 20 vans that go out. So, I mean, literally it's just five, six hours of straight, just being on your feet, packing, try to move as quickly as possible without making mistakes. And it's just, you know, making sure the invoices get printed, drivers can get out. And then at that point, it's just uh, minimize the mistakes while taking care of quality and, um, you know, taking, fulfilling the orders as efficiently as possible. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very hectic on a Friday because we're all just, you know, uh, adrenaline's rushing and, you know, the tuna guys are cutting 
four or 5,000 pounds worth of tuna that day. Um, you know, I got guys here since one o'clock in the morning, setting up the warehouse, packing orders. Um, and it's just, you know, truck breaks down. Sometimes you have to send somebody out, you know, all the shipments are delayed and it's just, you know, constantly trying to adjust to the variables and, you know, um, situations at hand and be able to, you know, fix that problem because at the end of the day, the customers really don't care why we're late. <laughs> you know, it's just like, uh, just, just, you know, I don't have to explain to them, hey, my truck broke down, so I had to send another driver to go get it figured out. You know, sorry, we're late. I mean, sure, we do have to make those excuses sometimes, but, you know, we have to always have backups in place to avoid those, you know, as if nothing happened. So we try to do our best. Yeah, it, and it sounds like you do have to have uh, the backup plan just for every contingency, whether it be the weather or flights or logistics with trucks or or traffic. I mean, the, the area of the country that you're dealing in especially if you're going to New York or the Bronx or different places that are really congested, that's out of your control, but you've still got to make it to the customer. But one of the things you brought up is, you know, you're not open on the weekends and, you know, your employees are all hands on deck. You have a really great culture there at Yama Seafood and that's intentional based on what your dad set up as far as your values. And I think it's unique with companies and maybe it's a result of the family owned business and handing that down. But can you share a little bit about the culture there at Yama Seafood and why that's, that's really a differentiator in my mind? Yeah. I mean, you know, when they started, it was just a bunch of immigrants from all different walks of life, you know, from Japan, China, Korea, Ecuador, Mexico, you name it. It was pretty much everyone but people from here <laughs> that kind of was formed the, the company. The opposite of DEI. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. Uh, the, the one thing, the few things that my father really cared about were not about your you know, speed or your intelligence or your skill or, you know, he cares more about... Um, your respect towards one another's you know, responsibility towards the job, uh, being consistent on time, early, you know, don't call out. Um, and your, you know, greetings, respect comes to greetings. We're, we're only as good as, you know, the customers that we work with. So when we take that for granted and don't forget that, hey, you know, they're our customers. So, you know, we always have to have that mindset. We're, we're there because of that. And uh, so every morning people walk in, you know, we expect everyone to say good morning. You know, it's, it's, I don't, because you never know nowadays, especially with our direct to consumer, people come and pick up, chefs come and visit us. It's like at any given moment, people can walk in. That's not our staff. And if they walk in and no one says anything, that is not the environment I want. I want them to feel like, wow, like, you know, Yama seafood is different. You know, I come in and they all said hello to me and, you know, they went out of their way to greet me. You know, it's, it has to be an impact rather than, you know, there's so many other companies you walk in and you walk in as a visitor, a guest, and everyone's just looking down, ignoring you, don't even acknowledge your presence and you're standing around like clueless. Um, and, I, you know, we don't want that to happen. So every single person that comes through the door, ourselves, myself included, we walk through the warehouse when we come in, we say good morning, we acknowledge everybody. Um, some people just walk, you know, some people walk in and scream at the top of the lungs. It's kind of funny, but, you know, it's just, you know, making sure everyone knows you're here, you know, make eye contact, it's just show the respect. And then that's contagious and everybody does it. And literally when you're going through training and onboarding, it's like first thing you hear, you know, a few things you hear is don't be late, say your good, see your good mornings and, you know, don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal. I mean, very basic things, right? You know, for us, it's about 
you know, we're not an office-based company where if you call out today, someone can, you know, you can answer your email tomorrow. No, it's like if a driver calls out, somebody else has to go out to deliver. You know, so it's just about having the understanding that, hey, you know, always the next man up mentality. But at the same time, it's just take your work seriously and responsibly. And if you do that, then everyone's going to have that same attitude. Right. You know? So that's, you know, that's what we have. We have, I mean, a good chunk, probably about a third of our staff don't even speak English, you know. Uh, but quite frankly, many of them are some of our best workers, right? They they don't never complain, they never call out, they work their hardest, right? And they figure out a way to communicate, and they're consistent, right? Uh, what if they don't know? We try to figure out a way to communicate with them, and then if we if we have people that can translate to them too, if we need like in depth conversation, but we don't really uh, hire based on oh you must speak English or you must speak this or you must know this, you must have graduated from this college. I mean. No, for us, it's as long as you have the willingness to work, you're consistent, you show up to work on time, you don't have excuses as to why you're not here, you know, day in and day out. I mean, there's a place for you here, you know? Yeah. So uh, that's that's the most thing that we care about. Yeah, and that is such a great culture to have, honestly. And I'm sure that's why you've had employees for as long as you've had many people. It's not an easy business to be in, you know, it's... Very intense, like you were saying, but you've had employees who have been with you 10, 20, 30, I don't know how long. Yeah, I mean, every uh, 20 years is a milestone at our company. So and when you hit 20 years, uh, it was always a company gift to give you a Rolex. That's kind of like a trophy to say wow. thank you. And uh, we have, yeah, I mean, we have more than a dozen people with that. And maybe there should be one with maybe two coming up soon, you know, Um not that I'll buy a second one for them, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, just, we, yeah, we have many people with very long tenures, uh, 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, it's pretty normal for us here, you know? And like you said, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's, it's an industry itself is very difficult, uh, because you gotta be up when everyone's sleeping. I mean, you know, I live in Jersey city. So when I, on Friday, Thursday night, Friday morning, when I go to work, people are still coming out of the bars. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Like when I leave to go in my car at like 1.45, 2 in the morning to head to work, I mean, the bars are still open. Mm. People are stumbling around. People haven't even slept yet. Right. Meanwhile, there's me in a, in a, in a jumpsuit that's driving to work at the backpack, right? <laughs> it's yeah. like, uh, it's just, a, it's completely different. So in my 20s, I just couldn't fathom like why, you know, I'm, I went to college. I, you know, I have other opportunities. Why would I do this? And um, I, it, at the time, it didn't make any sense. But, you know, as I matured and, you know, worked the corporate world and did other things and then, you know, came to the realization. I mean, this was never a thing where, uh, you know, my father was always like, don't don't do this. You know, you're you speak English, you're college educated, you you know, you can speak Japanese. You have all the opportunities in the world. Why would you want to change your life upside down, impact, you know, everybody involved with you, you know, like your, your, you know, your spouse, kids, whatever where you're going to be in bed when they're trying to, you know, like hang out with you and weekends too. Like, it's not like just because it's a weekend, you know, have work the next day. It doesn't mean you can stay up till midnight, just watch TV. It's like, no, like Saturday nights, like nine o'clock lights out, <laughs> you know, like, unless it's like a special occasion, a wedding, whatever, it's just not going to happen because my body's so used to sleeping at seven, eight o'clock most days. Yeah. Well, why did you come back? Um, I mean, it was a combination of, wanting to it, it was kind of like at the at the point in time my father was looking to deciding between selling the business or doing something with it he was on his track to retirement 
And um, he never really said it, but he, he, had, he had a hard time letting go because it's something that he had poured his life and soul into it, right? And he also was afraid that if he sold it, then it would be, uh, I mean, this is my assumption, but, you know, uh, it would change the livelihood of his staff that's been with them through everything from start to finish, you know, and he's not the easiest person to work for. He's very hardcore. So, you know, <laughs> it's just, um, you know, if you sold to a big conglomerate in Japan where, you know, he's had several offers in the past, it would change their income, the benefits, livelihood. And, you know, quite frankly, they might even, you know, uh, change their whole, whole operation. and People may lose their jobs. And that's the thing that he doesn't, would never want to do. He never cared about how much money he made. He always cared about his biggest thing was he wanted people to be prideful of Yama Sifu to say, hey, you know what? You know, I may not be a millionaire, but, you know, because I work for Yama Seafood, I was able to provide for my family and live a comfortable life, you know, and be proud of where you work. You know, that's, it's just giving the opportunity and to be proud of who you are and where you work, because quite frankly, you spend a good chunk of your life at work, right? So you got to be able to like where you work. Otherwise it's just kind of miserable. So, well, and then, Oh, go ahead. And then it was just, you know, at that point I was in my late twenties. I was unhappy. I was, you know, it's kind of ready to move on from my current job. And um, yeah, I mean, I kind of, I flew to Japan at the time when he was there and I was like, Hey, I, I think, I think I want to join the company and move back to New Jersey because I was in LA at the time. And then um you know, he's like, all right, well, you know, the phone number, you know, the email address, go give them a call, you know, schedule an interview. If they're going to interview you, you know, good, good, good luck type deal. So um, that was kind of how the conversation went. So I, I called or I emailed uh, one of the directors, scheduled an interview and came in and, uh, you know, moved back from L.A. And, you know, like a month later, I started working. And yeah, I mean, it was just um, he nepotism is not really it's kind of not frowned upon, but it's just. You know, for him, he knew that if he were to hand it down, it would be way, way more difficult to transition, right? It's just he was all about just earn it, you know. Otherwise, how are you going to lead if you don't, if they don't respect you? Um, just because you're, you have the last name, you know, I, doesn't mean you can run the business or get the respect from the people that has known you since you were in your diapers, um, you know. So that's the challenge as well, right? So they know me since I was, you know, yay high and drawing on the walls, and they were coming on Monday. It's like, oh, there he is, just drawing on the drawing on the the walls again, um, you know. To thirty years later, uh, joining the company and. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's got its challenges, culturally speaking, where it's all about seniority and, you know, age is a big thing in, in uh, the Japanese culture uh, to someone that's essentially my parents' age. Um, for me to manage them, it's shit. It takes a level of you have to be respected and you have to earn that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, 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 I try, try to do that day in and day out. And sometimes I struggle with that as well in terms of, um, you know, did I do enough to deserve it? Well, it seems like you're really focusing on that. And I think it's very funny that your dad made you call separately and interview at the company. But in reality, that is that is the way that he operates. That's the culture at your company. You've obviously come in qualified and worked hard and earned the respect and the position that you have. And so that is really a good leadership lesson for those that are out there listening. I think, I think it's great, but what I see you've brought in because there's some innovation going on, you know, you talked about expanding some of, you know, to the consumer market, whereas you've traditionally been B2B, like you're bringing some innovation to the 
to the company as well and thinking about how do we diversify, you know, first outside of tuna into different uh, species and then uh, just delivery methods and maybe who your customers are. Sure. I mean, you know, our direct-to-consumer market, it, it was out of necessity with COVID, right? March, uh, you know, that mid-March hit, we had, we still purchased the same amount of fish that we would any other week. And all of a sudden, you know, 25% of the restaurants shut down. Next day, another 25%. And then we're like, oh man, I mean, we don't really know what's going on. But, and next thing you know, like uh, at the end of it, like 90% of the restaurants shut down. So you still have the same purchase volume and what are you going to do when half of it is fresh? So we started doing like making boxes, fish boxes and saying, okay, this box is 50 bucks, this box, hundred dollars cash and carry. Essentially, you know, we will drop it off. You pick it up, whatever. I mean, it was, we, we lost a ton of money, but we, this, we realized that there is a market for it. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, uh, once COVID hit, we went from 75 people to 16 people in a matter of a week. Wow. Um, sales went down 90%. Um, yeah, we went to skeleton crew, 16 people and yeah, it was, we're like, okay, what are we going to do? So yeah, we quickly put up a, you know, work with my team. We got a website going in terms of e-commerce, took a bunch of pictures. I mean, it was, it was rough in terms of like the look and feel of it, but, uh, it was just out of necessity. We just said, all right, let's just start selling stuff to the consumers because everything is close. You know, people want it. And a lot of a lot of the you know a lot of people did pivot it to direct to consumer, um, but now it's kind of more like it's a you know it's a good side income to have, but you know I don't want to spend the money or the time on it to grow the business. But I, I'm on the other spectrum where I see the business going in this direction of you know I mean if you live in a city, who wants to wheel around in a, in a cart and go grocery shopping and wheel it back? And if, especially if you live in a building without elevators, you really want to huff you know, groceries up and down the stairs. And, um, you know, when we could just deliver it to your door or at least get it to your building and you just have to come downstairs and grab it, you know, same thing with every other subscription box and everything. It's just open up the market to, um, you know, pre pandemic, it didn't make sense for me to make a hundred dollar box. It's like, why would I want to do that? Um, but then you realize that it actually works very smoothly with what, with, with our, uh, what, what would we do? And a lot of the smaller custom restaurants don't want, Home consumers are grateful. They're very happy. They're excited to see it. Right. And obviously then to give the access to Japan, Toyosu, Uni, all the stuff that you can't buy at a, a local grocery store or even a specialty store. Um, yeah. The fact that it's pretty much it came today and you receive it to the same day. It's like it's it's kind of unheard of. So it's, it is it's, unheard of. I, 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 you know, consumers love that and they love the fresh. They like knowing where they, where it's coming from. And, you know, you have that trust built in. Uh, you also set up like distribution centers so customers can come pick things up too. I saw on your website where you have some locations and certain days of the week, you're going to have that availability. Like, it seems like you're really thinking about here's our core business and you're not giving up on that. As a matter of fact, I know you want to expand that with your chefs and restaurants and those B2B customers, but also there's this other, you know, extra lines of business that you could use. You know, we're, we home consumers are not chefs and we're not Michelin star restaurants like you serve. So the quality of the fish, it, it could be lesser than what you're giving those certain restaurants, but we love it. Right. Is, uh, so it probably helps you with evening all of that out when you get different qualities of fish in, I imagine. I mean, you know, we, we try to maintain the quality same as the as a, 
what Le Bernardin would get, right? One of our customers. Um, and that's kind of the selling point for our business. It's kind of like Michelin star quality, seafood delivered to your door. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, get the cuts that you wouldn't be able to get, you know, a Japanese a bluefin from Japan, uh, the Otoro cut, or like uh, uni from Hokkaido. Or, um, you know, like I said, tuna is very subjective. So it's not like, you know, the, because of the fact that we probably deal with the most amount of tuna in our region, we have the ability to, you know, pick and choose certain things and downgrade it. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of different portfolio of clients that want the best cuts to, you know, maybe not so because they're going to cook it. Um, but, you know, we also make sure that our home consumers get the best quality stuff because, you know, they're also paying top dollars for it. So I want to make sure that they're happy with what they're getting. And, you know, like I said, it's about education of it because seafood tends to be a uh, product or, you know, item that is, people are more scared of handling because there's just a lot of lack of knowledge and experience as opposed to chicken or steak. Right. So when it comes to fish, like, Oh my God, this is amazing. I ate at a sushi restaurant, but I have no idea what to do with it. Or I don't want to mess it up because it's so expensive. So, you know, I think there's a lot of that, uh, that we had to, especially in the beginning where, you know, there was no information and we didn't really have the right contents put in place or information. So it was a lot of just like, dealing with individual questions about how do you thaw out this super frozen tuna or can this stay in a freezer for how long, you know, it's like, well, no, we keep it in minus 80 degrees super freezer. So please don't keep it longer than a couple of days, you know, just kind of little things like that where um, obviously when we had 16 people, it was like, nobody could deal. <laughs> we didn't have the structure or the, the manpower, the resources in place to be able to do all that. But now that we're, you know, back to back, now we have 80 people and we're working on, uh, figuring out that aspect of the business, um, which we're not really familiar with, you know, making YouTube videos or really focusing on social media or, or even doing a podcast like this before it just would have been like, yeah, you know, why would I do a podcast? Why would I, you know, pay money to someone to run social or why would I run ads on Google? It's just, now it's like, I, you know, it's, it, it's the, it's the, the way we have to do in terms of building awareness and branding, because sure from a chef and restaurant perspective, everyone knows who we are. But from a consumer perspective, they don't know who we are because we never really cared for it. So sure, we may supply some of the best restaurants in the world and a lot of them until people are aware of that. They're not going to know where a lot of people just don't know our existence because yeah. we, you know, there was nothing out there before. Well, we're so glad that you decided to be on the on Future Foodcast because we're delighted to share you with our audience and our listeners. They love to know about good quality food and where to find it. So Yama Seafood is definitely expanding and they can check out the website. But uh, Nobu, before we go, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? I mean, thank you for your generosity in kind of giving us a look into your company and how you operate and your culture and just the the challenges and the successes that you've had, actually. But is there anything else you'd like to share? Like I said, direct-to-consumer market is something that I love for more people to be aware of. You know, we do ship nationwide. You know, we have different options of deliveries, pickup, um, and whatnot. So, and I'm always open to feedback from consumers. You know, if you guys want to send us an email or give us a call to say, hey, I wish you guys had this. I wish you guys did this. Um, I wish you guys shared this information. You know, these are all valuable information for us that, you know, when we do this day to day, we may not see it, but at the end user, it's like, Hey, I wish I had this information. Hey, I wish I had this option. I wish you guys bought this. I brought this or offered these things. These are things that, and obviously for us, it's, you know, we're only as good as the people that purchase from us. And we're, you are the reason why we were here. So I'd love to get any insight and feedback on 
any any anything, no matter how small you think it is. Uh, we're always here. I mean, I'm responding to emails all the time. Yeah, I'm very excited in this business. I'm really excited to, you know, provide this, empower customers, you guys to be able to do these at home. You know, you don't have to necessarily spend $500 at a, a restaurant to enjoy the same level of a tuna or salmon or uni that you, you know, that you could buy at home in your own comfort of your own home with your family and friends for the yeah. fraction of the price. So, um, yeah, it's, it's very exciting. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot more that we could do and improve upon. But yes, yeah, so that's, that's where my excitement comes from. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you to our sponsor, Farm to Plate. They're creating today, tomorrow's food supply chain ecosystem today. You can check out more at farmtoplate.io. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcast. Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry. 